Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. I don't use, I use the CMS actually for um, the memory class, the only thing I use for. Because I have to put articles up, and the university doesn't like us putting up links to buy it. It's some stupid thing. It's copyright law, and I don't want to get us in trouble. Um, okay, this is where we were. We're talking about what the men want in mates. And again, as usual, these are averages. Because uh, your men want women, lots and lots of fertile women. What men find attractive, more than women, and again, women find this stuff attractive too, but not as much men do. Youth, uh, clear skin, uh, symmetry, and the waist to hip ratio is actually a good indicator of fertility, and it's at about 0.7. And it's simply, why is 0.7 attractive? It's for some reason uh, the optimal amount of estrogen in uh, a woman's. The, 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 you know, in a woman for getting pregnant also deposits fat in a 0.7 ratio of waist to hip. So men have evolved to detect this. Okay. And I mentioned stuff about how, for example, I mean, last time about, for example, how strippers get bigger tips than they're ovulating. Fascinating. I don't know. No one knows what the mechanism is here, right? Do they, do they uh, dance and what? Uh, more attractively? Are they just more attractive, or are the men detecting something else? I don't know. All right. So you talk about different strategies, right? Because you know, pure strategy, mixed strategy, you talk about the hawks, the hawks and doves, where you could be a hawk all the time, you could be a dove all the time, or you can mix the two up. Well, same kind of idea. You can be monogamous, but now and then cheat on somebody. So people can be unfaithful, and in fact, very often are. If you look at the data over someone's lifetime, not, I, remember, I think I've said in a one-year period, about 93% of people that are in a committed relationship haven't cheated on someone, which is a pretty good number. That's in a one-year period. When you look over a lifetime, it's about 20% of people have. Which, again, is, uh, gives me some hope for the humans, because that means 80% are doing okay. So that's good on them. So people are unfaithful, as uh, it happens. It's hard to get these rates. The one I just mentioned was something I literally read yesterday, and the hard, and they actually mentioned in the paper the hard thing is actually getting people to admit to something that's socially really not very acceptable. Um, the study at the beginning about you know men um, saying yes to sex gives us some idea that men would be more likely to be in any given year more likely to be unfaithful. The data I was reading yesterday was 23% men and 90% of women. So that's not much of a difference. When people are screwing around their spouse or, or partner, what do they prefer? Well, the biggest thing, this is all again a hard thing to study, because you have to actually find people who are in affairs and then get them to answer questions and convince them that you're not going to tell anybody about it. Not an easy kind of piece of research to do. People have done it. Basically, it all comes down to this. Men, men's standards are a lot lower than women's standards. 
Um, if men have decided to screw around on their, on their partner, it's, with, it's much more likely to be with anyone that will screw around with them than a woman. That, again, makes a great deal of sense, evolutionarily. There's some interesting data about jealousy and about sexual jealousy. And in fact, people should expect that sexual jealousy would be something that would have been heavily affected by evolution. Right? So when you give a scenario to people and say, when would you be the most jealous? Men are the most jealous in a scenario where their partner is having sex with somebody. Women are the most jealous when they find out their partner has an emotional bond with somebody, even more than sex. <coughs> Guys, it's not a free ticket. Well, I don't have an emotional bond with her. That'll work out great. We'll try that as an excuse. Um, I don't feel anything for her. Um, and I remember the first time I taught this class, which uh, I saw it as a special taught this class in 2006. And I, I had a class of, like, as usual, very few guys, because that's the reference in the psychology program. And the guys were all amazed when women were going, well, oh, yeah. What? So to me, it's very, it's, it's mind-boggling. Um, again, the women wouldn't be happy with their partner sleeping with somebody else. There's no argument there. But they're even less happy when it, they find out that some, they have a, an emotional attachment to somebody else. The guys were, again, and you ask guys, they're like, yeah, I don't care, emotional, whatever, have friends, go, go do stuff, have a good time, talk, I don't care. You're, you're not screwing, right? <laughs> That's guys' big thing. That's cross-cultural too, which is cool. All right, so just a few, uh, yeah, a couple of conclusions here. Don't fall for the naturalistic fallacy, especially with this stuff. This is a real warning here, because we've got stuff about, you know, men like young women, men have lower standards, women do the shoot. All this stuff doesn't mean that it should be that way. So no one's saying, also, no one's saying we do, we're doing any of this consciously. This just happens, which makes sense. The differences themselves that we find seem to be pretty steady over time, even though there's way more men doing childcare now, uh, sharing in that, and there's more women sharing in earning the family's money. Um, these differences seem pretty stable, which I think tells us should tell us something. That this stuff is pretty, and this makes some evolutionary sense, is going to be pretty resistant to change from changes in the environment. These strategies work pretty well. Questions on this stuff? And we move on. I believe we're going to be able to catch up and actually get everything done that I wanted to get done in the course. Because you have a test on next Tuesday, right? Same format as last time, by the way. I don't like tests. I just like tests a little bit.
I like the one in the multiple choice. No. no. <laughs> well, I, I don't mind those. I like tests when I was very well prepared. I would walk into a room thinking, ask me some questions. I know everything. Come on, coach, put me in. You know, that kind of feeling? Um, it's the ones you don't like are when you go into a test thinking, oh, I hope he doesn't ask about that stuff. Those are no fun. But when you, when you go in, it's like, I know all this stuff. So fine, my hand's going to get a little sore because I have to write for an hour and a half. But I'm going to kick, kick this thing's ass. What the hell? That feels, now you used to feel good. That said, I don't want to write any more tests ever in my life. Um, I, I paid my freaking dues. Okay, so let's talk about development and sort of family stuff. This is one of those expressions. It takes a village to raise a child. Well, it actually takes a village of relatives. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, back in the EEA, we lived in family groups. We lived in groups of 30 to 50 people, and everyone was related, more or less. Now, uh, people always wonder, well, how did that work? I mean, people were interbreeding, and they're, 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 they're um, related, yeah, but once you get past about first, first cousin, the, uh, the, 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 the negative sort of part about um, inbreeding, the homozygous, homozygous problem, kind of goes, is, is made up for by the fact that you're mating with somebody who you share any of your genes with. Okay. And most laws, actually, that talk about incest, that's where the lines cut. Though most of us still find it a little bit. I was watching this TV show where there's this couple on it, and they met and fell in love, and then yes. they found out they were cousins. Yes. And they went to the doctor, and he said there was only like a 1% increase chance of their baby having any problems. Yeah, cousins aren't really that dangerous. And in fact, it, what it, it's made up for by the fact that not only, so you're going to share more, a little more than half your genes with your kid. You're going to share, because um, you share an eighth with your mate. So you're going to share not half your genes, you're going to share seven, no, wait a second, 16, 17, 30 seconds of your genes with your, with your uh uh, mate, which is better than 16, 30 seconds, which is half, right? So that's called a sort of mating. I mean, we tend to mate with people that are more similar to us. And sort of birds, you know, and sort of fish, and everything else. Um, the idea that opposites attract is a complete crock of shit. It just isn't true. It sounds nice, but it just isn't true. Typically, and again, if you're in a relationship with a person who's like, you're opposite, don't, don't think, oh, I'm biologically doomed. But because, I mean, you are, but it's a joke, it's a joke. But it's interesting that we tend to, to, to like attracts like it. Right? Uh, and there have been many cases where there was a case in Brazil this year where two people met and found out that they, they found it on TV, that's great, that they, the husband and wife, and it turns out they're actually, um, they're actually brother and sister. So, um, half brother and sister. Because their father was a uh, guy that, you know, went around and having sex with many, many women. And we can talk later about the incest taboo because it's fascinating and how it didn't work there. Because you'd think, oh, they should recognize their brother or sister. No, they just recognize they're really similar. So, I mean, in the EEA, we lived in family groups. The idea of communal child raising makes a lot of sense in that case. Um... Your families, families are basically kin, right? I mean, they either are kin or you're adopted into a family and you're treated like kin. 
Right? You're treated like um, you're related. Basically, what a family is, is a group of relatives that stay together after sexual maturity. Right? Now, think about this in a human. Sexual maturity happens when 12. You can have, or, or, or you can either have a baby, your father, or maybe you're 12. You probably shouldn't. But you can. It's possible. And probably back in the EEA, that's when you did. Right? Nowadays, not so much. Wouldn't they have not hit puberty until later dates than we do now? So, I mean, I've heard some stuff about that, that puberty's onset's a little bit earlier than it is. But you got to think about this. People didn't live to be... In the EEA, people lived to be maybe 30. Yeah. That's an old... Like, nobody lived to be my age. Um, so you'd want to hit puberty around 12 or 13. Um, Neanderthal hit puberty probably around 7 or 8. Um, so, and it's interesting that should, uh, have there been, has there been some effect of things like artificial light and uh, hormones in food, things like that? There apparently has been some, but I don't think it's nearly at quite as drastic as, say, for example, say for example using um, the Neanderthals and the Eusebians. So, why would you hang around? Right? Why would you hang around to be with your family if you could go up and have kids yourself? One of the things you can do would be a helper at the nest. This is a term we tend to we, we adopted uh, from uh, bird behavior. But and this happens a lot in birds, by the way, where a bird will reach sexual maturity, uh, an individual bird. Uh, but they'll stay with their parents. And what they do is they help raise the next year, the next set of kids, the next season. Thing is, they're, not gonna, they're probably not going to get any mates if they go on their own. They're too young, not attractive yet uh, enough because they wouldn't be strong enough, etc. So why not help my genes out? Right? And of course, the reciprocal altruism aspect too. So there's people around to help out to help you out. <coughs> All right. So that's basically what a family is. Again, in a, in a cold evolutionary sense. Um, now, if there's investment in a kid, and there will be, because humans is critical investment, the offspring would like it to go on forever. Right. The parents eventually want to have more babies. So let's look at this genetically. The mother and the daughter or son share a half of their genes with each other. So why not, for the mother's point, why not make more babies eventually? So at some point, the mother's going to be better served genetically by having another kid than she will be by uh, caring for. And as we talked about last time, this can be a physiological thing. And with humans, it often is a physiological thing. And during the EEA, it always was. There was no formula back then. 
We had domesticated cows. So we have not only a behavioral, but an actual physiological investment in the young. But at some point, she's going to be served better by having a kid. Make sense? So conflict occurs when the parental cost is two times the benefit to the offspring. This is Robert Trivers' stuff, um, and he's brilliant. At that point, then it's in the best interest of the parent and the kid for mom to have another baby. Right? Let's bring up the graph here. So it's not just the continuation of investment, but also the amount of investment. We could look at it that way. That could be a sort of bone of contention between the two as well. So what happens is, as the offspring gets older, so this is where you get the conflict here, because we've got the cost ratio, when it's between one, two, and one. This, this is comparing two different species, because it's from a sociobiology book, not an evolutionary psychology book. But you get the idea here, this is where the conflict's going to show up. Eventually, it's like this is twice as costly to mom as it is benefiting to me. I share half my genes with mom. Oh, now this hurts both of us. Mom should have another kid. So this is what we should expect, for example, when you wean a baby. Okay? <coughs> they don't like it much at first. It depends on the baby, yes. And I can't remember how that went. But I can say that getting them off having bottles was hard. That took some work. It was like they were putting smoking. I mean, I think, I think it's like that. It's like, no, you can't have a bottle anymore. I don't want to be the parent of the kid who's walking around at four with a bottle. <laughs> you ever see those kids? Right? They look like they're like, when a kid can explain to you how to put a diaper on, they're too old to wear diapers. And when they can say, can I have a bottle? They're too old to have a bottle. That's, that's sort of my view of parenting. Take that away from me. The one thing. Um, so that's when you should get the conflict. And I said, that's Trevor's work. Uh, he's a brilliant biologist. There should also be, of course, sibling rivalry. So not only are you fighting with your parents about investment, you're going to fight with your brother or sister about how to get, how much anything you're going to get. You share half your genes with your brother or sister, but you share 1.0 with yourself. So again, it's that two to one ratio. Now, monozygotic twins should be nicer to each other than dizygotic twins, shouldn't they? And you're sitting there again saying, yeah, I bet they are. And there's just not really a whole lot of data saying yes. The data are pretty much equivocal. Some studies comparing monozygotic and dizygotic twins show that Monozygotic twins are way more giving to each other, more pleasant to each other than dizygotic uh, twins. And other studies say there's no difference, and other studies find a difference going the other way. It doesn't seem like there's anything there. It doesn't seem like there's anything there, which is kind of a shame because it would fit really nicely. But you've got to go with what the data say, not with what um, you hope fits, not with just with what fits with your hypothesis because it makes you feel good. Okay. One of the 
things that we always important try to get across to little kids and we're raising kids and most of you guys don't have kids. I know, well, just, is this one of us in here that has kids? Just two of us, right? So you guys, though, have little brothers and sisters, perhaps, or have been around. Can't even uh, babysat. It's an ultimate great gig when you're like, a teenager babysitting. People pay you to hang out with children and eat their chips. I, I just never could understand how there could be a better gig. I used to love being good. Guys, baby, yeah, it's great. There's chips, there's pop. They have a computer. I got a computer in 1981. They got to do my computer science homework when I was babysitting. It was wonderful. Anyway, you got to teach your kids to share. So it, it's it's you got to teach your kids to be nice and especially nice to relatives. Now we don't tend to do that, do we? Think about that. Then we say, now remember, first of all, should also calculate. Your genetic relatedness to these different people, and then share accordingly. No, we don't do that. We say be nice to other people, take turns, share, right? Because it's also sensible to share with strangers and be nice to strangers in the right situation. Because of reciprocal altruism, right? I know it, it ended like in 2007. You've had a lot of time to catch up. It's not on Netflix. And it never will be. It's HBO. Yeah. Though, when that new app comes out from Bell, in like six months or a year, and then you'll get access to all the HBO. It's on my list. You should be watching it now. You should be, you know, I, I don't condone stealing things off the internet, except in this case. The Darewall TV has everything. Yeah, but it's illegal. Though I just said it's not know. downloading. Still illegal. Yeah, you're not doing anything illegal. They are. Yeah. Whereas when you download something, you're, you're actually also doing something illegal. I thought downloading wasn't uh, illegal. No, it's illegal. It's completely illegal. Yeah. A lot of people think if we, we live in some sort of fantasy, and no, no, that's not true. It's completely illegal. Yeah. And of course, the download you have to upload anyway. Some people think, oh, it's only the uploading, but you have to upload the download. So, so it's all yeah, of course it's illegal, but um, you're still stealing. Yeah, it's still stealing. Yeah. So, if you don't get caught, don't tell us about it. Don't still talk about it. Or you just go through tour. Um, anyway, so this is good for you and for your kids to learn to share, right? Because your kids are going to share with you. Always be selfish. You got to think. Always be thinking. We're always being selfish, right? So, that's the nice side of raising kids. Then there's the bad side. Sometimes people kill their kids. So this is kind of depressing, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a common enough practice. And it's a much more common practice 
was it was much more common practice, probably the EEA, than it is today. It's much more common practice among poorer people than among uh, poorer sort of culture, cultures, like as far as uh, stuff there. The richer ones, that makes some sense. I'm not saying I like it, but it makes some sense to me. Frankly, if the infant isn't viable, or if the mother's very young and has little resources, it might be, from the mother's point of view, obviously, the best strategy. We see it in, in, in non-humans all the time. When a lion, when a male lion takes over a pride, and there's usually one male and a bunch of females, the first thing he does is he kills all the cubs. Well, after he's killed the other male. Or maybe the other male gets hurt, dies, whatever. But the first thing he does is he kills Simba. And now that he's killed all the young, the, the females aren't nursing anymore, so there isn't the suppression of ovulation, and he can get them pregnant. So this is something that animals do. It's something that and we're animals. It's something we do. I'm not saying it's nice. And in fact, we find it one of the most important things when you give people a list of possible crimes, this is high on the list of uh, badness. Right? And this is what we see in infanticide, is when we have a young mother. In our, in our society, we don't see it a lot, but when we do see it, it's when we have a, usually a very young and poor mother. Again, I'm not saying it's a good idea. It's horrible, right? Now, more conflict is all this you've done. Development, all development, families, and children. Yeah. Now, parents, of course, have conflicts too. Um, one of the things that they might have conflict over is certainly a paternity, and I've talked about this before about how male humans never know for sure it's their kid. Right? They can't. The women always know it's theirs. It'd be pretty magical if it wasn't theirs. Right? So, one of the things that the... And of course, the, the female woman wants to convince the guy that it's his. And so do, the parent, so do her parents want to convince the guy. And her parents will always, and it's interesting, about 80% of the time, say that the grandborn baby looks like the father, and the parents of the, of the father, about half the time say the father, half the time say the mother, which is actually probably more reasonable. What are the parents of the mother doing? They're convincing the father that it's his kid. Are they aware of this? Of course not. And probably some of them. <clears throat> Not very Now, the ultimate case when you've got someone who you're not, you know is not your kid, but you're raising like your own kid. is a stepchild, right? So you come into a family. Um, what should we expect with stepchildren then is we should expect more abuse of stepchildren and more abuse of adopted kids than biological kids in that sort of ways. That's found. That's a thing. That's some of the stuff that Marty, uh, Marty Daly and Margot Wilson, that's one of the places they started, Margot uh, Daly Wilson, is they started looking at abuse towards adopted children and stepchildren versus biological children. 
sort of music appreciation class, which I'm all for. That's right. It could be. It's finally. It's finally knocked us down, right? <laughs> it smells vaguely, vaguely like, like various different kinds of cappuccino and coffee in here, because a lot of you guys drink coffee. <laughs> so we should be able to predict what the most common grounds for divorce are, um, and the most common like, grounds is the right word. You are there's no fault divorce most places in the West, but what the reason now is. And the most common reason for divorce is about allocation of resources. It's about money. <clears throat> well, that makes complete sense. Right? It's about spending habits. It's about... It's, it's in, in the grand scheme, it's about financial stuff. And financial stuff in today is how what we call you know, resources, right? So we can look at divorce and when families split up. Um, after that, it's going to be infidelity and infertility. So infidelity, cheating on your spouse, and the inability to father or mother to have a, to have a child. When we get past resources, and it's resources when it's once the kids are born. Should make that clear. So it's once the kids are born, it's resources. Before the kids are born, the most common things are these things. Well, obviously that's going to be before kids are born because you can't have kids. That's pretty cross-cultural too. And in that case, it probably is best early days for people to split up, right? Now, for development, we talk about attachment. So attachment is the idea that you learn who your parent is, right? And you get a, a, a healthy attachment, not like a clinging on to mommy's apron spring kind of attachment, but a, a healthy bond with, with mom or dad, uh, or and dad. Typically more bond than dad, I guess. Separation anxiety, which is, and, which is around, which is, uh, when a, when a kid freaks out when their parent isn't there. And that peaks around 13 months. It peaks around 13 months. And this is pretty much sort of right where it ought to be, because if you can if a baby can make it to about a year old. They're probably viable. Okay. And it's interesting, separation anxiety is a strange thing because at first you think that when you first have a baby and you hand them, you first have a baby, you hand them around. Everybody's holding the baby. Nobody cares. The kid doesn't care. They don't. You know. They hit about somewhere between 10 and 15 months old, they suddenly are scream when they're not with you. Right? 
And it's good to know that that's totally normal and don't worry about it. It's hard to do because they're, they're, 80s are manipulative bastards. Like they're horrible <laughs> people. They're so manipulative. Right? And we're even selected for the, their manipulation, right? Baby cries are, we are tuned into those things. Okay. Um, when you first, the first time a baby, when you have a kid, your kid, the first time it weeps, not just cries, in the first month and month and month, month and a half, they don't, they don't weep. There's no tears. They just cry. And when you first see tears, it's like, well, that's it. I may as well just give up now. Life is over because you can totally control me. And that's what they're doing. No, really, evolutionarily, that is exactly two of us are sitting there. Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. It's exactly to this day, and I bet you feel this too. I, I never felt this before. I had a kid. I hear a baby crying, and I just turn my head. Yeah. Like, it, it's, no, I don't. My kids are old, too old to cry like that. Right? <laughs> they cry about having such an idiot for a father, but um, but it's interesting because. The hardest part when you split up from your kid is, is, is separation anxiety. They are manipulating you. That's what they're doing. They're trying to get you to stay. That's exactly where you expect it. It's exactly where the kid's going to be viable, and it's exactly right around the time when the parent-offspring conflict is saying, oh, there's between, somewhere between the two to one thing. It's exactly where we expect it to be. And it is so very hard. It's nice if you know some psychology and you can say to yourself, this is totally normal. It's actually good. If the kid isn't crying like that, that shows that there might be some problem. It's a good thing. It's still hard when you leave the house for the first time and you haven't been out of your house in a year. And you decide, we're going to go out to a movie. And you leave the kid with a babysitter. And they're sitting there in the window looking at you going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> It's horrible. It's just horrible. <laughs> You've had that experience? Because I know I've had that one with two. It was worse for me than her. Like, the first time I left her was yeah. 10 months old. I went to a wedding. And oh, I but did, with my parents. did she show separation anxiety then? Uh, not really. Okay. Yeah. So that's not as. Yeah, because they're it's just going to upset you, but part of it is like, why are you crying? <laughs> um, you know, I remember the first time we left Maddie, I think we went to a wedding as well. And she was probably five or six months old. The first time we'd been away from her for more than like couple of hours yeah. of like going into a quick into a movie or have a drink or something. Yeah. But when they hit 13, 14 months old and then they can look at you and just Yeah, she's still doing that. Yeah. Turn her off at her dad's and she just wails. How, how old is she? Uh, she'll be two in December. Yeah, it'll go away soon. It'll go away soon. Remember the first time we dropped John off at daycare? It was like, well, we can't do this. This just isn't working. You know? <laughs> So, why are kids kids? In the words of Homer Simpson, kids are stupid. If they were smart, they'd be adults already. Um, why do they have, why are children so freaking childish? It's an interesting question. Like, think about this. When a horse is born, it comes out, it struggles a little, then it goes, well, well I can run now. <laughs> Human babies are losers. <laughs> They're just losers. So why do we have kids that, like, kids, why do kids, it's ridiculous. The, 
stupidest little things seem important to kids. Like, objectively, they're stupid. Kids don't know anything, and the things that they like are ridiculous. I mean, kids are awesome, but when you think about it that way, you're right. Like, a kid draws a really shitty, like, a kid came up to you and said, I drew you a picture. Here, this is a picture of you. You know, you want to go, oh, that's so cute. Really? That doesn't look anything like me. It's not a picture of me. <laughs> but really, seriously. Right? But, so why are kids like that? Well, it makes some sense. We have a lot to learn. Humans have a lot to learn. Um, there's social development. We have this really complicated social interactions with humans, right? More complicated than any other... Probably more complicated than any other animal. <coughs> I'm trying to think, like, are we, are we more complicated than, like, a bee or a wasp? I think we are, because, like, the roles change so much in people. Um, there's also a lot of cognitive development that has to happen. So we teach them our language. We teach them problem-solving skills, and they also just develop those skills. So they have a lot to learn. This is why kids are kids, and they don't just come out as little miniature adults. Look back to a picture. Look what I'll tell you. I don't give Freud a lot of credit for anything, because I, I think he was just a very old man from Vienna, took with cocaine. But, I'll say this for Freud. He didn't think kids were little miniature adults. That kids, that was different types of things about and that kind of thing. Look back at pictures from like the Victorian era. <coughs> People dressed kids like adults. Little boys wore little suits. Girls wore little dresses and bonnets. Right? So I'll give Freud some credit there. He realized kids were with little miniature adults, but I guess you know, you know, you know stop the clock is right for twice a day. Um, it's kind of good that kids are the way because this makes them practice living in our society, living in our culture. And cultures change, so we have to. And knowledge changes, right? So it's good for them to practice living in our society, in essence, right? And that could be our society, it doesn't matter which one it is. It actually makes them proud of little tiny accomplishments. Accomplishments that really are, again, objectively, that doesn't look like a person. It really doesn't. Yet, they're proud of that. And we're proud of them. They get very excited about stuff like this. So when they act, kids act like kids, it makes them incrementally learn some very small things, right? But that eventually become really big things. You couldn't learn our whole, doesn't matter what the culture is, you couldn't learn a whole culture like this in a year. It's basically self-deception, isn't it? We've talked about how self-deception is probably the best kind of deception. Um, it probably is just self-deception. Oh, you 
toys in a box. Ooh. Really, that's not that impressive. Would you clean your whole goddamn room? But you know what? We get really happy. <laughs> oh boy, you didn't shit your pants. Like, we, we, that's the, one of the greatest moments of your life, by the way. When your kid stops and having to wear diapers, it's great. It's like, it's not that impressive. I haven't, you know, pooped in my pants since I was quite two. Well, we're almost 50 years now. It's not that impressive. It's not really that much of an accomplishment. I just wake up every morning and go, well, I'll shit my pants today. I mean, but it really is. So, but those are little tiny things, and they have to learn a complicated system like human culture, no matter which one it is. Incrementally, it has to be a very small amount. Of, you couldn't learn it all in one day. So it makes sense that they self-deceive. All right. So the social clock is the idea of when you leave home, when you have kids, when you get married, all those things. look at data on this, that parents push kids out. Now, I don't mean that you just say, you're 18, get out. It can be very gentle, it can be very loving. I'm not talking about, you don't live here anymore, you're an adult. Go away. No. I'm not talking about being a jerk. But I'm talking about encouraging your kid to get an education, for example, because if you encourage your kid to get an education, they can live independently. They can probably get a job. Right? So it's not like the, the, the birds just throwing the, 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 the little baby birds out of the nest going, hope you can fly. Um, and again, I know there are people like this. Um, and it amazes. as a parent, it boggles my mind that there are people like this. But there are. And that makes a great deal of sense from the parents' perspective. The parents want more genes passed on. It's basically, you go have more kids so there's more copies of my genes out there. Right? That makes I think a lot of sense that the parents, at some point, it's like, I can't do any more investment. You've learned everything you can learn from me. Now go off and mate so there are more copies of my genes. The interesting thing is, one of the things you can look at is when a kid dies. It's getting kind of depressing. The grief for lost children is the highest ever in 11 or 12. Wow. I mean, no one really likes it. Well, there must be some, you know, there's always some jerk, weird, creep, Jean Gomeshi type out there that probably does like that. He's now my go-to creep example for everything. I never liked him. I hated Moxie Fruvis in the 90s. Like, I hated them. I hated that show Q. Yeah? See? I could see it. I got a, I got a, I got a detective. Bad guy. Why am I under 12? Well, I mean, yeah, that's when you had kids. It isn't anymore, you hope. This made sense in the EA. It's like, oh man, we just about to go make more copies of me. 
Now it isn't because people don't have babies to do it. Having a kid young typically is 20, 21, 22 today, right? So typically, we would say it's pretty, it's a little young. We wouldn't say it's bad. We would say it's younger than normal, younger than average, using this, this little sense. So 10 years later, and we still go today, eh, that's a little, you know, huh, we're only having kids, whatever. Great. It's not like four. Or 12. We don't, 12. Ugh. We get creeped out by people who have kids when they're 12. No. They get reality shows on TLC. <laughs> right? We get up in arms about that. Well, maybe we should, you know? It's a kid. In the EA, that's not a kid, that's a possible mate. We should get most upset, evolutionarily, when your kid is around 25, 24, because that's typically when people start having babies. Nowadays. And that should be moving all the time. We should be able to look back. Like when my mom, my mom was, how old? she was 19 when I was born. And that was pretty common, probably a little younger than really. Um, we should be able to look back and say the grief should have been the most, and we're like, eh, it's still 11 or 12. <clears throat> Interesting. Okay. Boy, we got through this one quickly. Wow. I think a lot of the ideas we have in developmental psychology, I think it's revamped as a little strong. I don't know if they need to be revamped. I think bringing the evolutionary angle into it makes some sense. There's some great stuff about cognitive development. There's some great stuff in the... I'm not a huge Piaget fan, um, but I don't know a great deal about developmental psychology. I can tell you that I think bringing the cognitive and social development in line with evolutionary thinking makes some sense to me. I think arguments can be understood. A parent, offspring, parent, parent, uh, and sibling rivalries can be understood and maybe even help some people. So there might be some application to this too. Right? Look at a couple after they're married and, and find out, you know, and I, I know that therapists do this now, they often talk about money and managing money. Um, hell, think about this. Wouldn't it be nice if in school someone taught you about how to take care of money? And I don't mean how to make a change. Right? Anybody, they can, they can, they can, they can cash register. I mean, like, wouldn't, it have been, wouldn't it be nice if someone explained to you very basic things about how taxes worked? Very basic things about how investments worked? About how buying a house works? And getting back a loan? And credit cards! I have seen so many students, undergraduates, that say, well, boy, I'm glad I'm getting my OSAP so I can pay my visa bill. I go, what? Why did you do that? I didn't credit cards for my second year graduates. I also was brought up by a banker. So I was told how the financial system worked. And I, you know, I was careful with that. But wouldn't it be nice to know that stuff? And then you wouldn't have those conflicts as much once you're together with somebody. I think there should be a general kind of life skills course like that anyway. You know, in high school around, maybe when you're 16, teach you how to do things like how to hang a shelf how to put a button on a shirt, how to properly cook a steak, how to make a martini, teach guys how to shave properly, 
Just really simple things that people ought to know how to do. Maybe teach you how to say some words in another language. Make you a little sophisticated, right? And also teach you things like, here's how a mortgage works. But I think like, properly cooking a steak is probably the most important thing of all those and making a good martini. It's, that's, it's, those are the manly arts. Um, kids aren't little adults. And the nice thing is we've, we've discovered this in the last 200 years probably. But I think we have to also realize that kids are, are stupid. They just have a different outlook on life than we do. Right? They have this idea, they're, they're trying to learn our culture. Right? And eventually they're going to take over anyway. So I think part of it is that we have to l- learn to let them be independent, but we have to understand that they're dependent. Right? I think one of the things that's happened is we've almost gone too far the other way now, where we now have kids that are, you know. People follow their children around everywhere. People call university professors and ask about their kids' marks. I'm sorry, your son is an adult. And I hang the phone up. Due to privacy concerns, I can't discuss your daughter's grades. It's my favorite one to give. Um, it's actually true. See, so we know they're not little adults, and it's almost like with the knowledge from developmental psychology, we've almost gone too far the other way now. Um, and we don't let kids be kids. We have to structure everything about them and everything like that. I think the important thing about like play is really learning our culture. It's practice. And not all play has to be structured with a play date and has to have a referee and two teams and then everybody getting a trophy at the end. We got done really quickly, but we're done. Um, Next class, we'll talk about uh, sort of social psychology and culture. And then that doesn't take too long. And then we have a free flowing discussion about this whole way of looking at psychology. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.